from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. This is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Andrew Rannells, who, like so many of you, I first saw in the Book of Mormon on Broadway. And by saw, I specifically only mean the Tony Awards performance, since I did not live in New York City at the time. But Andrew sang, I believe, the big 11-ish o'clock number, and he totally wowed me. I From there, he's transitioned to this really lovely film career, acting in shows like Girls, Black Sunday, the movie musical The Prom, and now he's adding director to his resume, having adapted and directed a modern love episode in the new season. That premieres August 13th on Amazon Prime Video. Now, all of that is discussed in the podcast today, so without further ado, let's hear it. So like many people, I remember seeing you sing at the Tonys in 2011, and soon after you popped up on Girls on HBO and have gone on to this largely TV and film career. Was that the plan all along? Did you want to transition eventually to TV while you were doing theater and doing the show? No, not exactly. I mean, I had wanted to be on Broadway since I was a kid, and my dream had always been to be on Broadway and to be a you know leading man on Broadway. And I had the opportunity to replace in a couple shows. Then when I did that a couple times, I was like, well, I'd really like to do a new one. That would be nice. So I took some some time to focus on just trying to find new musicals that that I could come into to New York with and, and debut on Broadway. And it happened that it was the Book of Mormon. Every few years, there's a Broadway show that sort of attracts the attention of the West Coast. It happened with Rent, and it happened with certainly with Hamilton, and the Book of Mormon was also one of those shows. And if I'm being totally honest, I had filmed two seasons of Girls and then had done a pilot with Ryan Murphy for a show called The New Normal that was picked up and was going to be on NBC. And I was still doing the Book of Mormon while I was doing all of that. I was still in the show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I was able to to continue to do it. And then it got picked up and then I had to move. I had to move to Los Angeles. And it was an opportunity that was too good to not pass up. And it was not necessarily... The TV stuff was not necessarily always on my radar. I really just wanted to do theater. So with that TV show, The New Normal, it was about, you know, a gay couple that's having a child through a surrogate. It sounds so inoffensive to like our ears today, but it wasn't, it created quite a bit of controversy like 10 years ago, right? It did. And I think it was not, it was Ryan's first time doing a half hour and it was a half hour on NBC specifically. So, you know, the tone of what he was used to working on with like things at FX and things on Fox even, you know, they were hour long and there's a little more edge to it. It was a little sharper. And I feel like, and this is just my opinion, I don't know how true this is, but I feel like maybe a lot of executives, not Ryan, but maybe a lot of other people involved kind of thought like, oh, well, this will be sort of like Modern Family because that was so successful. And it was kind of a weird show. I really loved it. But like, you know, tonally, we were doing some really kind of like wacky stuff, which I thought was really fun. But I think it was not maybe like the family comedy that people were hoping for. It was also incredibly unique 
than to have, you know, a TV show where like two of the leads are gay characters. So like concerning that, you know, it was such a different time for queer people in terms of the the types of roles available, like quality, but also quantity. There was just like fewer roles. Did you ever worry about how your queerness would affect your career? I maybe did early, but no. By the time, I don't know. My introduction to being on television was to play two queer characters and two very different queer characters. So I felt like I was very lucky with Ryan and with Lena that they were not only writing queer stories and including queer characters, but they were also making them very flawed and multidimensional people that were really fun to play. So it felt like I felt like I was already benefiting from so many other actors having to be just like the gay best friend. And I felt like I arrived on girls and yes, technically I was the gay best friend, but like she wrote some crazy stuff for me to do. And it was really fun. It would, and it changed it. And Ryan, of course, centered a whole show around a gay couple. My character was like a little larger than life and like loosely based on Ryan Murphy. He was a showrunner in Hollywood and had a lot of money and was, you know, sort of, but desperately wanted to be a parent. And I think that was where he was most vulnerable was talking about why he wanted this child. I don't know. It was not anything I had seen before. So I still feel very lucky that I got to work with those two early in my career that they gave me some some really great opportunities. When when a role isn't like three-dimensional, as you said, do you like fully like pass on playing those roles? Or do you speak up and say like, hey, we can tweak some of these like more cliche elements? It depends. Sometimes, sometimes it's easier just to say, no, thank you. At a certain point, I was having dinner with Trey Parker in Los Angeles, and he said, I think you need to start writing stuff. I like looked back at my, you know, the experiences that I had had more recently, and I was like, I think I could. I think I could do that. So not really knowing where it was going to go, I did start writing, and mostly just for myself. You know, slowly but surely, that sort of took a different shape, and I, I felt like it was became a little clearer as to what I could do with it. When you say writing, are you saying like the book you publish or are you saying like screenwriting? Well, a little of both. You know, I worked on a couple screenplays for Judd Apatow while I was still working on Girls. He asked me to write basically like a gay rom-com. I really like Judd a lot. And I, I think that he's obviously very talented. I just think we never really saw eye to eye about what that story might be. So it was a great experience in that I learned, sort of got a crash course on how to write a screenplay with somebody who's very good at doing it. It didn't ultimately end up being a film, but it was a really, it was a positive experience. And then through that, I knew that I wanted to write something that I really felt strongly about and that I could easily relate to. And the easiest thing to to write in that standpoint were some, you know, stories about my early life in New York and my childhood and my coming out. That's when I, 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 sh- I met Bill Clegg, who is a, a fantastic writer himself, but also a literary agent. And he suggested I send one of these essays to Dan Jones at the New York Times for Modern Love. And... They published it rather quickly, which I was really surprised by. You know, that then turned into a book. And then Modern Love circled back around and said, what about adapting that essay? It's like a short film for our, our second season. Could you do that? So that was really exciting. And it was an exciting way to go back and revisit that story. And for those who don't know, can you just give like the two-sentence synopsis of what the essay is about? Sure. I was 22 years old and living in New York 
was on a first date with a young man, ended up having sex with him. And while he was still in my apartment, I looked at my phone. My cell phone was still fairly new. This was 2001. I love that detail from the essay. I think it was your first phone, you said. Yeah, put yourself back there. My relationship to my phone was, you know, it's not what it is today, was not always out. So I had a bunch of missed calls from my family. And it turns out my father had had a heart attack and was in a coma and things were not looking good. And I got this information while this man, who is basically a stranger, even though I had just been intimate with him, (laughs) but was not someone I wanted to process this news with. He was still in my apartment and I had to figure out how to handle my dad news and also get him out of my apartment. (laughs) So this is not the first modern love essay to deal with like death or grief even. And I say that because you wrote this piece 2017, I think. Yes. There is like a very tiny podcast adaptation in the Modern Love podcast that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And then you did are doing this TV adaptation. It is something is connecting with this piece with people. And I think it's more than just everyone's lost a parent or will lose a parent. Like, what is it you think that is connecting after so many years? I don't know. But, you know, I was, when I was promoting the book and I, was to, I went to, I think, five different cities and did, a, you know, live reading events. And people afterwards who were who were buying books and I was signing books, at least at least two or three in every city would someone people would say to me, that happened to me. A version of that happened to me. Maybe it was their mother. Maybe they were, you know, could be it was. I remember a couple women specifically telling me one was lesbian, one was straight, that they had very similar experiences. You know, the specificity of my story is is sort of one thing, but I think it gets read and sort of understood in the way that like, life is very messy and no one can sort of plan when that stuff happens and when that news comes in. There's also like a, another element of the essay that's about, I think, figuring out who it is you want to be. And a big part of what I learned that night was at 22, I was living in a sublet in Astoria, this apartment that I did not love. I had a job that I did not love. I didn't really like that guy I was with and I had sex with him anyway, because I thought that's what I was supposed to do as a gay adult man was like, that's how dates end. And I just had this moment of reckoning very quickly as I was like looking at him and looking at the apartment and being like, all of it is wrong. And you need to start doing things that feel better and that allow you to take better care of yourself. So after, you know, my father died, you know, a few days later and the funeral happened. And when I came back to New York, I really did sort of reattack how I was going to go about it because I felt so aimless those first few years I was in New York. And I think people do relate to that. And a lot of people have, it might not because not might not be because of a death, but you know, they have a moment of sort of reckoning of like, what the hell do I want out of this experience? Like, what am I what am I looking for? Because it's like a weirdly common experience to be on a date to go home with somebody. And then afterwards, you're like, Oh, that was a really horrible date. Like, why did I even go home with them? I know. And then 10 more times, you're like, Oh, wait, I did this again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's I mean, I don't know about you. But like, I definitely felt like that was like part of the deal is like a man dating at that time. And I, I know it's it's probably very different for 22 year olds now. I'm, I'm 42. And I would say at that time, that was sort of the expectation I felt. I think it's probably different now. But in 2001, it was like, 
this is this is how we figure it out. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like too. I feel like on on these episodes, I'm either like crazy sex positive or crazy like anti casual sex, and like I can't get it right. <laughs> and that's life, right? But there is this kind of like thought that for gay men, like you have to be comfortable with casual sex, and like if you have a like a bad sexual experience, it's like something that's wrong with you. Yeah, it's true, and I think that's probably changing for for people now. I hope that people feel differently about it. I mean, my whole like coming out and like losing my virginity and all of that was very messy. There was a lot of shame involved and a lot of guilt involved. And so I felt like getting to New York a few years later was like my chance to kind of restart. And there were some good, there were some good things that happened. I ended up having like a very sweet first college boyfriend and it all was like sort of what I had imagined it would be. And then some like not good ones, you know, but that's again, Jeffrey, that's life. You are now in a relationship with Tuck Watkins, who you met doing Boys in the Band, uh, a showmance, if you will. If you will. How common in your dating history have like showmance has been? Let me think about this. I'm just counting boyfriends right now. Yeah, no, it's pretty common. Um, here's the deal. Here's the thing, as a, especially as a theater actor, you meet people at work and eight shows a week take up a lot of time even when you're not performing you're often rehearsing and you're just you're spending a lot of time with these people so i would say like my first serious boyfriend i met in a show and then i had a sort of on again off again you know casual ish relationship with somebody when i was doing hairspray and and then that was it no that's not right nope and then the next one yep was in a show yep and then uh the one after that though not in the show yeah yeah so i really broke my i broke my streak there and then chuck was in a show and then he was also cast on black monday i mean that show has you it has tuck however are you often like one of the only queer people on set usually though i would say yeah yeah i mean we have a there's that's we have a couple queer crew members but yeah mostly i'm the only queer actor there I think because compared to Boys in the Band, where it was this all queer cast. Oh my God, everyone. I think that there was such a celebration of this all gay cast playing all gay roles around that show. And then similarly, like when like Moonlight won the Oscar, we're like, look, we solved diversity in Hollywood. Like we don't need to use the D word ever again. (laughs) Right. And we're like, actually, like this is one, this is an outlier. I think that I was, I don't want to, I'm not trying to like make you name names of drag plays, but I was kind of surprised that like following Boys in the Band, we saw certain gayer plays that kind of cast all straight people in the gay roles where they're like, Boys in the Band did it. Like, it's fine. That's been really surprising that like we like have the celebration and we go back to where we were. I know it's interesting. I will tell you just from a, a casting perspective, when we were casting Modern Love and there was a lot of talk among the casting directors and the executives about how important I felt it was to find two queer actors to play these parts. And I sort of go back and forth about this. I don't know how you feel about it, but I kind of, I I go back and forth about, well, it should be obviously, you know, if you can, that's great. I think that if there's a, you know, like boys in the band is a great example. They found these, you know, nine actors who are all out and, proud and like good at their jobs so great 
On the other hand, there's the argument that like, well, shouldn't it be the best person for the job, especially if it's, you know, like an acting gig and that, you know, shouldn't it just be the whoever is the best person at telling the story? What I didn't anticipate, and I think speaks to maybe what you were just saying, I would say people in their 20s, now this is going to be a generalization, but actors in their 20s, I think, are not coming out in the same way that my generation of, of actors came out. It's not that they deflect, it's that they don't want to define it and they don't want to label. And the labels have changed so much in 20 years. So I imagine on in some of those shows, and I think I know which one you're talking about, where there was sort of more, there was like a lot of young people in it. And I, I, I bet they had a hard time finding guys who would actually nail down like a label on their sexuality. I would guess that was an issue. I think that... Um... Well, I think that like we conflate everything. So it's like, I don't want to advocate that a white person should be cast in a black role. I also think that the issue of casting trans actors and trans roles is very different than casting gay actors and gay roles. Uh, I think those are different conversations. Yeah, absolutely. What I don't hear people saying actually is the point that you made that when you're in your a teenager, when you're in your 20s, you're still yeah. figuring things out. And so like, who is it helping to like force people to disclose? Yeah, because it can, ch- I think it can shift and it can change or it can be more defined or refined in some ways that people really figure out what they what they're looking for and and again it it, when i came out it was you were gay or you were straight and those were the options that i thought were available to me and i yes bisexuality existed as a label but i also knew that that wasn't really true for me but i and i never had to go through the the part of my career where i would you know said like I would rather not say, or my private life is private. Like I, I didn't ever go through that. And it didn't really uh, even occur to me when I was, you know, I was 32 when I was, when I had met Ryan Murphy and met Lena Dunham. And I just felt like there's no going back now, kid. Like you've had too many boyfriends in the past to now all of a sudden be like, I don't want to say, like they'll show up. Those people will show up. I just felt like there was no going back. And Trey Parker says that he didn't know, it didn't really occur to him when they cast me in in the Book of Mormon, because it was a pretty, I would say a pretty clinical audition in that I came into the room, I did my thing, and then I exited. There was not a lot of chit chat in the room. And he, again, they didn't care, but it was funny that it didn't occur to him. And I've heard him tell that story before that he was like, oh, I didn't really think about it because I was so focused on like, him doing the material i didn't think about the act like what is his real life in preparing to talk to you i looked up what else was nominated that year of book of mormon like what just what came out that year and there were shows that i like had forgotten about it's kind of exceptional that you know 10 years later we're still talking about book of mormon in interviews it's pretty nuts that it's still running and still evolving. And that will always be part of my story. You know, Josh and I, Josh Gad and I joke that, you know, when we die in our obituaries, it will, it will say the Book of Mormon and it probably will say co-starring Josh Gad and his will say co-starring Andrew Reynolds. Like we will be named in each other's obituaries and that show will be a part of it. And it's, it is, it's funny to think about, you know, what becomes your, your legacy and what you're sort of known for. And I'm very proud. While we're talking about your obituary, which maybe will be (laughs) quite a few. (laughs) Do you foresee, as you move into directing this Modern Love episode, do you foresee doing more directing? 
I would really like to. Yeah. I mean, this was a very unique experience in that it's a story that was very personal to me. I got to write it and it was, it's not like directing a normal episode of television. You know, it's a one-off, it's one episode, it's an anthology. So every, every script is written by somebody different. Every episode is directed by someone, the cast is different. So it really did feel like a, a great opportunity to do like a almost like a short film. So that was, it's very unique, but I would love to, love to direct more. If I could have input on your career, I would ask if the rom-com that you were doing with Judd Apatow, we don't have enough queer rom-coms and like we, I don't, don't think there's even been like a big studio one ever. So like that was so exciting to me to hear like that's even in like the back of your brain, even in a tiny place. Well, so my best friend, Zuzana Shipkovsky, who I've known since high school, she and I just completed that very script. And so now we're in the process of, 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 you know, sort of fine tuning that and taking that around town. And because I do think there's a place for it. And I do think as many queer films as there are, there can always be more. And I feel like, you know, this, this one that we, that we wrote is specifically sort of, you know, sort of based around our relationship and, and Zuzana and I figured out a few years ago that she is the longest relationship I will probably ever be in. And I am hers, even because like boyfriends have come and gone, and but I've known her since I was eighteen, and she's always been consistent, and I've always been consistent with her, and it's just a very you know that's a unique bond, yeah, that the gay and the straight girl have. So yeah, so we tried to uh, do our own version of that sort of a when Harry met Sally sort of situation. I'll keep you posted. Please do come back. And I cannot wait to see it in like 2027. Hope a little faster than that, Jeffrey. Jesus. Thank you so much for doing this today. This was so much fun to talk. Thank you. It's so much fun to talk to you. And you make this very easy. So thank you. And that was Andrew Reynolds. The Modern Love episode that we talked about is available on Amazon Prime Video on August 13th. And then I'm very, very excited to make an announcement. And that is that next week we will be back with an iconic tennis player. Yes, it is Billie Jean King. So if you've not yet subscribed, please do that now. You do not want to miss it. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. And I will see you next week with Billie Jean King. <laughs>